88.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio, a discussion on our children, public policy, and how we do as a city and community. Oh, I said that wrong. When it comes to taking care of all of our children. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas children. A nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on the behalf of Texas youth. Each week we film... We aim to film these same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life of our children. My name is Claire Dutre, and I am joined with... Hi, I'm Sharon Watkins-Jones. I'm Chief Equity Officer at Children at Risk. Glad to be here. We are excited. How are you doing, Sharon? Doing great. I know. The weather's a little gloomy, but it'll the sun will come. That's Texas for you. I, of course. And of course, we have our regular segments today, like Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, and Data of the Day. Our teaser number this week is 70%. What do you think that number means? It's a big number. It, it could is. be anything. Head. I know I bomb this every week because my brain literally <laughs> <laughs> just wipes any guesses as soon as I read the number. I'm going to guess 70% of children are... Oh, well, that's actually a low number. I was going to say passing their star exams, but I would hope that's 100%. 70% are excited to take a star exam. We know that's not true. That's definitely <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> that's, I guess, we'll see what Layla has for us later. Okay. In addition to Layla, our guests and topics are Eleanor Prado, who's a doula and primary of Primary Doulas of Houston. We have Dr. Armando Orduna, the Executive Director of Latinos for Education Texas, and Linda Cochada, our very own Director of the Center for Immigration, and she will be talking about Dia del Niños for Literacy Day. So we're excited. We hope you stay through us throughout this whole show as we discuss these issues and how they affect the children of Houston and Texas. So we're ready for our first segment. Producers. Do we have our music? Long pause. <laughs> Strategically picking the same track every week. Not awkward at all. No, not at all. The audience wants karaoke. They're craving it. But I'm so sorry. You're going to have to tune in another hour for karaoke or maybe this hour. <laughs> One, two. One, two. We're not getting, we're not, we're going to skip the music, but we are excited. Sorry to keep everyone on the edge of your car seat, but we have our thumbs up, thumbs down topic. Should high school students be allowed to use chat G? I didn't even read this yet. Chat GVT to help with their assignments. This is, what do you think? Um, I'm going to say yes, because they're probably going to do it anyway. Oh, they are. Things are are so different from when I was in the classroom. And even since, you know, parenting i've got i've got kids in college now but i think we do have to kind of roll with technology you know so it doesn't roll over us as educators (laughs) no it's rolling over i uh the kids i tutor i laugh because they will um, be like oh i have an assignment due but i'm just gonna use chat gpt (laughs) yeah so you're not doing the assignment um but it is especially at a collegiate level if it's writing your whole paper then what 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 are you learning it's almost rewrite rewiring again the conversation of what is education and i guess the onus is on educators to keep up with these technologies because you know otherwise you won't be able to recognize when a kid has gotten maybe too much help yeah you know but if you're if you're up to date with it you can you can use it and use it as an example of how not to plagiarize or how to do actual research, you know, for kids who may never have ever stepped into a, a, a library and used the Their Dewey life. Decimal System. Yeah. No, <laughs> they don't even know what the codes on the books mean. Right. Um, and that was my favorite part of going to the library was just simply finding the books. Yeah. I got so excited, um, except when someone moved them, it ruined my day. So maybe if we don't fight it and go with it and use all of these tools as 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 examples of you know what to do and what not to do then maybe the kids learn from it as opposed to just yeah. use, use it to circumvent a whole paper because it's not exactly we have from our producers it's technically not plagiarism because they it is fresh words um so i i'm a, impressed with how i think turnitin is the first plagiarism checker mm-hmm. for blackboard to mm-hmm. catch it i don't mm-hmm. know how they catch that it's chat gbt yeah um but like you said, you can leverage it. So maybe encourage students to ask it to give them sources that they can look at. So it takes away time from that. Maybe eventually we'll look at it like we do Google. Like it's just a, a tool in the in the arsenal for learning. Yeah, I have it give me my weekly meal plans. 
for my diet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty spot on. Awesome. Workout plans. Yeah. So use it to your advantage. Cover letters. I know people are using it for that. Um, so it'll be interesting. I think, like you said, there's no way to avoid it. It's not going to be shut down. So utilize it to your full advantage yeah. teachers the old school teacher in me is like no get a book no get it i know <laughs> it's just writing out ideas watching it but again like you said it does leverage teachers to know your students yeah um, even though you can't really say this you could just question on their abilities but cool so we have music playing but if we i think we're waiting for our first guest actually but we can discuss from the classroom are you pro project or test assessment? Ooh, I actually do kind of like um, projects because project I think based. that kind of um, helps you to see what a child or what a student has synthesized in yeah. their knowledge as opposed to just, you know, rote memory. Yeah. Um, I wish I'd had more of that when I was a student, <laughs> more projects, because, you know, you, yeah. you, you graduate and then you supposedly have all these skills that you really don't get. Until you know how you, to memorize a Quizlet real exactly. nice. You yeah. really don't get those skills until you're in a workplace or in a situation where you have to kind of take the things you've memorized and put them into play. You know, yeah. so I think projects, project work, project study does help students get, get, um, skills that they'll need to actually put into play their knowledge. Yeah, you always get the, what am I going to do with this? Yes. I'm never going to have to look at a periodic table again. Right, right. Like, well, you will in, in school, but I guess if you're not a chemist, you might not <laughs> have to find the atomic weight of oxygen. I don't know, it comes in handy even at home. You know, you know yeah. which, which cleaning yeah. um, things not to mix <laughs> so that yeah. you don't cause an explosion. I know. I'm like, it's fun facts. It's funny, though. There'd be some lessons that still blow my mind. Buoyancy, I can get, I can explain. But no, I too think it's crazy a ship can float on top of the ocean and we're not going to talk about it further, <laughs> class, because I don't know. Um, but no, yeah, my class actually, they didn't hate me, but jokingly hated me because I made them day one do the spaghetti tower, yeah. group tower. Um, and they're like, miss, I hate group projects. And so well, I get a lot of pushback, but it did immediately bond. Absolutely. And then this is when you can also use your technology because you can always go to YouTube and find examples of how the things that they're learning are being used by yeah you know people in their professions or you know even you know people that are just you know doing experiments for fun so yeah you can always connect I mean critical thinking alone but where you were science you were English so math. I was I was a special ed teacher special but ed. I did do a lot of um uh, I, I can't remember what it's called co-teaching so oh, so you so had all of kids them. that were mainstreamed you know just yeah. me being there making sure that they got what they needed while in a mainstream classroom so you know, you don't pick and choose who you help. You help everybody in the classroom. Yeah, so important. I loved my co-teachers. Debatably mm -hmm. had the two best on campus. But um, yeah, they were pulled from science to English to history. Yeah. And so it's interesting too, because you basically have to learn with the students if you're not an expert in that subject and then teach said students in specialized manners. So special ed teachers are the core of our education I system. Loved it. I loved it. You know, especially small groups. You get to know those kids too. You do. So fun. If you have any opinions on thumbs up, thumbs down, education, or the conversations we're about to continue, please go ahead and call in to 713-526-5738 and press two. I believe you could still press one to donate if you're feeling generous. There might be a t-shirt. I might have made that up. But we do have our next guest coming on in just a little bit. If we can get some music going for that lead in. Ah, here it is. We have our next guest, Dr. Armando Orduna. Am I pronouncing that right or close? Uh, close. Yes, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Arduna. You are the Executive Director of Latinos for Education Texas, just in case our listeners missed our brief introduction earlier. We are so excited to hear just holistically the work you do, and then specifically on current recruitment for Latino parents. So how are you today, one? And can you give us an overview of your position and the work your organization does in Texas? Sure. Uh, I'm well, thank you. And thank you again for inviting me onto the show. 
Um, Latinos for Education is a national nonprofit. We're an educational equity nonprofit. I have the distinct honor of leading the Texas office. We have another office in New England and one that will open uh, within the next year to year and a half in the Bay Area. So we're very excited about expanding our reach and serving Latino families and students. In a nutshell, our mission is to develop, place, and connect essential Latino leadership in the education sector. And that work pretty much sits into two camps. We have advocacy, and then we have programming. And the programming that we have is actually for the adults. We don't have oh, any cool. programs for students. The programs are for the adults who make up the ecosystem of support for students' development. So we have fellowships for Latino teachers, Latino school administrators, Latino parents, and Latino professionals working outside of the education sector who wish to have an impact um, on education by sitting on a board of directors. It's a board governance program that we have. Very cool. And can you speak of how this fellowship kind of comes to be? And we can kind of break it down, starting with, of course, teachers to administrators. Is it more of a grow your own pipeline or how does the recruitment look like? And what are those supports that are unique to um, Latino leaders in education? Sure, sure. You know, I get asked uh, a lot of questions about that. Um, so specifically, let's do it one by one. I think it would be easier for me um, if I talk about the, the various fellowships, their specific missions, as well, uh, why they were developed. So in regards to the teacher fellowship, we, which, by the way, we are currently recruiting Latino teachers. If, uh, if you will allow me a shameless plug right now. Go, go uh, ahead. If you, uh, for any Latino teachers out there, please keep your ears open. Or if you know a Latino teacher working in public education, this particular fellowship is open to uh, pre-K through 12 teachers, either working in a traditional school district or a charter school net, uh, network. And it would be for this summer. It runs um, from July through August. It's about four weeks. So this fellowship, like all of our other fellowships, is uh, there's an application process, there's an interview process, um, and then we we select the group, which is typically for this one is around 20 teachers. Now, this fellowship was designed uh, for the recruitment and retention of more Latino teachers in public education. Um, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware of, for the last three, four years now, um, every time August through October rolls around, the newspapers are filled with headlines of mass teacher exodus, mm -hmm. teacher shortages gripping the nation, whether it's in a charter school context or a traditional school district. There simply aren't enough public school teachers out there to educate our children. Mm -hmm. Now, simultaneously, we are seeing that student enrollment, particularly among Latino students, is on the rise, not just in the state of Texas, but across the nation. So here we have this problem where while we have more Latino students enrolling into public education, we have fewer Latino teachers there to support them. Mm -hmm. And there's strong evidence, which we go through in our fellowship, that explains that teachers of color are critical for success for students of color. Mm -hmm. When students of color have teachers who look like them, share the same cultural backgrounds, perhaps even the same linguistic backgrounds as their families, they are, their attendance rates increase their discipline rates decrease, referral rates I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. they're, um, they're more likely to be recommended for gifted and talented testing. So there are certain tangible um, benefits to having more teachers of color in our classrooms. Thank you for saying now, that. Yes, and for that particular fellowship and all the other ones, um, people can simply go to latinosforeducation.org where they will see uh, an opportunity to put in an application. So I'm looking at some of this, the data on your national website that shows that while Latino students are 25% of all U.S. students, there are only 4% of Latino teachers and 2% of, te of leaders on educational boards are Latino. And that's, those are national states, um, national 
um, statistics, but how does that um, look in Texas? Well, when we get to Texas, the numbers are not quite as dire, but there's still a lot of room for improvement, a lot of room for growth. So in particular with Texas, uh, we have, and I want to make sure, here we go. I wanted to make sure I was giving you the exact numbers. So here in Texas, over half of all of the state's public education students are Latino, 52% to be exact. Wow. Now, let's just take a moment to, to work with that number. 52% of all Texas students, pre-K through 12, charter and district, are Latino. Mm -hmm. In Texas, 29% of all public school teachers are Latino. Mm -hmm. And then when we start going up the chain, the numbers start to drop. Yeah. Principals, that number drops to 25% in the mm -hmm. state of Texas mm -hmm. for Latino principals. School district leaders... 8%. And by school district leaders, I can tell you right now, the school district leadership, we actually pulled the numbers together of superintendents, Texas superintendents, as well as school board trustees. So these are the system leaders. Um, and it's still, when you pull them all together, it's still only 8% that rep, that match and represent 52% uh, of the state's student body. Mm -hmm. So this is where it becomes critical that we, we, being the public, start looking at what we can do to support teachers in staying, not only staying in the classroom, but staying within the field of education. That particular fellowship that I mentioned is set up for helping Latino teachers to understand their specific cultural collateral, or rather their specific cultural currency that they have at their fingertips to use with students. Now, whether they use that in the classroom or whether they advance to a campus administrative role or a district administrative role, they're still in the game of education and they're still there to advocate for uh, Latino families and students, uh, in addition to all the other students, but they have a special something to bring when it comes to those students. Yeah. If you don't mind me, and I'm being a little long-winded, I'd love to talk about what we're doing for Latino parents because that's a really exciting program that as of right now, in our national uh, office, we're only conducting here in Texas. Would love to hear that. We have a program, a fellowship, again, for Latino parents. It's actually called Familias Latinas por la Educación, Latino Families for Education. Now, we piloted that program here in Houston uh, about three years ago, and it's the only fellowship that we run completely in Spanish. Now, let me tell you this. When you have a leadership program that you run completely in Spanish, you draw in, by default, a subset of parents that have not previously engaged with school districts before at the policymaking level. This particular leadership fellowship uh, is centered on equipping these parents with advocacy skills. So what we do is, the first thing we do is sit down with the parents, and explain how school systems in this country work. Then, specifically, explain how their child's school system works. So in this case, let's say Houston ISD. Then we open up the budget. We show them the, how the money flows, where it goes. We show them how the schools are funded. We then explain to them the system and where in the system they can leverage their voice to exact change and greater access and opportunities for their children's education. And because so many of our parents don't, so many of our Spanish-speaking parents who, uh, who uh, apply and enter this particular fellowship don't get paid for public speaking at their, at their jobs, we even include public speaking lessons within the fellowship because the end goal is that by the end of this eight-week program, they'll be able to set up meetings with school principals, with uh, their children's teachers, of course, but also attend board meetings and be able to come to the board meeting and explain what their needs are, their children's needs are, what their demands are um, directly to the school system leaders. And here's the thing. I can tell you that we are already seeing real tangible change happen. In 2021, we had a group of parents in the Gulfton neighborhood that came together and there were, in this particular case, there were 17 parents with 
18 different apps. And we let them know, listen, we were able to get an audience with the superintendent and the school board trustees over this particular neighborhood, this particular area. Come together on one ask. What is the most important thing to you as a group of parents in this particular neighborhood? They came back the next week and said, we're ready. And when the school system leaders arrived, uh, we had simultaneous translators there, interpreters. Everybody's wearing headsets. Everybody can understand each other. And they uh, explained to the superintendent uh, at that time um, it was uh, when Superintendent House had just arrived to the Houston area. Mm-hmm. Can you please look in your $1.9 billion budget? Because this, by this time, they, they knew the budget. And find money to provide simultaneous Spanish interpretation at your board meetings. Mm-hmm. If you do that, we will come. It's a lot. It's a lot to come to a new country, learn a new culture, secure uh, a job, support your family, learn a school system, and try to learn a a new language on top of that. If you can help meet us halfway, we can, while we're learning and mastering language, we can show up at the meetings and still become involved and become involved like as of tomorrow. And I can tell you this, I can tell you that I was at that first board meeting at HISD, the largest school district in the state of Texas, in 2022, so last year. And I was sitting in, uh, next to our parents who had previously made that uh, request, and we were there to make a formal uh, sign of gratitude, a formal thank you to the, to the superintendent and to the board. And when we looked over, everyone with our headsets on, we looked over and we saw the Spanish interpreter sitting next to her we saw an American Sign Language interpreter. And I turned to the parents and I said, look what you did. Look what you did. You got people talking in the back end to see what else they could be doing. And by the way, uh, HISD is a district that has a student population, 62% that identifies Latino, with a large percentage of those parents uh, identifying that Spanish is either their uh, sole language or dominant language. So, it's an incredibly useful tool to have um, simultaneous interpretation at the board meetings. And really there's no reason why it had to wait until 2022 to go into effect. Hey, but now it's here and we're very happy for it. It's amazing the work that you're doing. And the fantastic part is that the 52% uh, that these students represent will also represent the future workforce. And so what you're doing is going to make a lasting impact on uh, kids and families in Texas. And we appreciate that. And thank you for all of that. Yeah. Thank you so much. much. Um, I will say this uh, before you, before you send me packing, um, we're going to be running. (laughs) We'll have you back on for the families. (laughs) Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Well, I was just going to say that this year we were very fortunate to receive uh, funding to extend this programming to HISD elementary Spanish speaking parents Hmm. in near Northside Cashmere Gardens, mm-hmm. Gulfton, and Magnolia Park. So for any listeners out there who know of a parent who would be interested in this type of work, again, it's Magnolia Park, Gulfton, Cashmere Gardens, and near Northside. Please reach out to latinosforeducation.org. We'd be happy to connect you. Awesome. Well, we hope that that reached them for you to reach out and get some participation, but we'll definitely have you back too to get more parents on board for the stronger work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate joining. Spider Boy, King of Thieves, weave your little webs of opacity. My pennies made your crown. Next up, we have Eleanor Prado on the line. She is with Premier Doulas of Houston. Eleanor, are you with us? I am. Hello. Awesome. We are so excited to have you on today to talk about a few things. But of course, we want to start with, um, I'm sure some may have heard the term doula, but are just unsure of what that might look like. So give us the doula 101. Sure. Yeah. So a doula is someone who provides um, support to people through education. Um, the type of doula work that I do is around birth. Um, so there's fertility doulas, there's birth doulas, there's postpartum doulas. 
Um, there's There also are death doulas and all of that out in the world as well, um, and divorce doulas and <laughs> things like that. But specifically regarding the work that I do, I do um, birth work. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I provide education to people um, through this transition into parenthood. Um, I act as their encyclopedia. I act as their guide. Um, and then also specifically as uh, in the birth space, um, I act as someone who can help provide physical comfort and emotional support kind of through the discomfort of labor. Um, the analogy that I will forever use is um, imagine that I'm your tour guide and you're entering into this foreign country and you get to call the shots on like what you want to see and where you want to go and the things that you want to do. But when you have your tour guide with you, they kind of know like the hidden gems of things and you don't have to bring along like all of your guidebooks and your language translation apps and all of that. So I am that person in the birth space and kind of entering into this kind of medical space or this new space that you perhaps are not super familiar with. Seems like there's a resurgence of um, the significance of doulas and midwives in in communities, and in particular in African American communities, given the um, you know the dire maternal mortality rates that are going yeah. on. Um, can we talk a little bit about that historical significance and what that's looking like now? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think historically in America, and you know in most countries around the world, midwifery was the norm, Mm -hmm. right? So we're talking um, out-of-hospital births, right? The majority of pregnancies are considered to be healthy pregnancies. And so, you know, there's not a lot of need for medical intervention, typically, statistically speaking, in a birth when you have a healthy pregnancy. Um, And then kind of medicine came in and like the new wave of medicine and pharmaceuticals and all of that. And birth, especially in America, transitioned over to a more hospital-based system. And, you know, we had, especially like in the South here in Texas, you know, we had a lot of the granny midwives, which were black women typically that were delivering most of the babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were systematically kind of driven out of their profession by the medical industry. And so um, the culture shifted and changed, and fear really started surrounding these outside of hospital births, right? And then um, birth became something that is, you know, oh, well, it's, you know, let the professionals do it. And so, you know, you typically, in a home birth situation or out of hospital situation, you have your people who have like, you know, your family members and your friends and other people around you who have seen birth as well and are there to also guide you through that birth process. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now I think there's this, we're starting to see that there's this resurgence of midwifery and there's this resurgence of doulas, which are these helpers and support people in labor, because what we've seen is that a super medicalized model isn't always the best. And especially in America, um, you know, we have one of the best medical systems in the world and we rank 55 in the world for maternal mortality. Um, Out of the 11 countries that are considered highly developed, we're the last on that list. There are third world countries that don't have necessarily the access to the medical interventions that we have that have better maternal mortality rates than we have. Um, And specifically in the black community here, black People are, um, they are dying at a rate of three to five times than their white counterpart. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when we equal them out, you know, with education and, you know, socioeconomic status and all of this. We're not saying, you know, I think when people first hear that statistics, they're like, oh, you know, black people are dying at three to five times more likely. It's because they have a worse diet or it's because they're not as educated or whatever. But no, these statistics are based on the equalization of black people against white people. And so what we're seeing is that um, just like everything else in our society, it's, it, there's racism, right? And it's built on racism. And so um, when you're entering into that birth space, not only are you as a black person entering into a birth space where maybe 
highly medicalized atmosphere Mm -hmm. is not necessarily the correct space to be because we are 55 in the world in our ranking, but also now having to face a racist environment, right? Where, you know, doctors have biases and they have racism that's kind of built it not only into the system, but into their own personal background and history. Yeah. It hasn't been that, that long since um, some medical students were actually trained that black women didn't experience pain in the same manner as white women. And exactly. So those are the types exactly. of things that are happening in, in hospitals still. So, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What we're hearing is that, um, you know, black people are not listened to mm-hmm. and their concerns are dismissed as, oh, you're just being dramatic. And, oh, you're, you know, that's not really what, you know, oh, you know, black people complain more than white people. Right. So when they complain, we're not going to listen to what they have to say. Um, and it's really awful. And so as a doula, I mean, I am a white person. So Mm -hmm. as a doula, um, I, one of my big passions is anti-racism and I understand, and I work with a lot of, um, like BIPOC brown and black clients, um, especially here in the Houston area. Um, we are white minority, right? And so, um, it's, I think all doulas in Houston should have this as one of their top priorities. But um, I like to consider myself like the white advocate in the room, right? Um, So that in situations, and I've experienced this personally, where same doctor that I had a birth with a month before with a white client, I'm now having birth with with a black client is being treated differently, Mm -hmm. right? I can be the one in that room to kind of advocate for their safety and advocate for what they are saying and make sure that the environment stays, Mm -hmm. um, you know, make sure that they're heard. That's so important. And, you know, recently we're hearing a lot of, uh, even in the the media, some high profile cases where uh, black women are are speaking about their experiences and how they've had to really advocate for their, their, their health and the health of their um, baby being born, such as Serena Williams, who Mm -hmm. came forward talking about how she nearly died giving birth to her daughter because she wasn't being listened to in, in a manner that she would, that you would expect someone of her means. Yeah. And I mean, Beyonce came out and talked about how she almost died having Mm -hmm. twins. Right. Right. Um, and I mean, she gave birth in Lenox Hill, which is like on the Upper East Side, New York City, one of the bougiest hospitals that exist <laughs> in America. You know, um, I mean, you would think, right? Yeah. 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 Thinking so of, I think oh, like, go ahead. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you'll probably touch on it, but um, you're the, not just or beyond their voice, beyond being their advocate in the room. What are some, you sent me statistics that were interesting and kind of made me stop and think, um, but the use of a doula in labor, what else does that entail besides having an advocate in the room? Sure. Yeah. So um, they've done double blind studies that have basically proven that um, just by having a doula in the room, and this is someone who is trained as a doula, right? It's not necessarily like your friend who's like, yeah, I'm going to be your cheerleader and coach you on. Like this is Mm -hmm. someone who has some training and background, Um, But having a doula in the room reduces your chance of a C-section by 50%. Um, So right off the bat, you are already set up for, you know, potentially having a lower risk delivery. Um, Obviously, we can't guarantee outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of my clients do end up with C-sections, right? Um, But, you know, with doulas, you have a 25% chance of a lower, uh, shorter labor, um, there's a 60% reduction in epidural requests. There's a 40% reduction in Pitocin use. And Pitocin is one of those drugs that's used um, not only to stop hemorrhages postpartum, but also to increase contractions uh, for labor progression during labor. Um, and so, you know, just with some of these statistics, we're looking at lower intervention in labor. Um, and with every intervention, there's there's always benefits, but there's always risks, right? Um, I always like to talk about hospital interventions as tools. Each one has a benefit and each one has a risk, right? Um, and if we don't necessarily need them, then we don't necessarily have to use them because even with the benefits comes the risks. Right. And so um, a lot of what we do as doulas, so like, how do we do this, right? How do we reduce C-section rates? How do we do reduce epidural requests? It's not just by education. It's, uh, you know, hey, this is what this is. You know, it's not just by cheering them on and telling them that they're doing a good job. A lot of our training is surrounding 
what are the mechanics of birth? How do you move in labor to kind of help facilitate a baby through the pelvis? Um, some of the things that we do are troubleshooting. Okay, so you've been stuck at this one stage in labor for a really long time, and you're experiencing pain in this one particular spot, or like your contraction pattern looks kind of like this, you know, so then I'm thinking in my head, okay, that can mean that the baby's possibly in this position, so here are some physical things that we need to do. Here are some positions you can get in. Here are some things that we can do to kind of help move us past this so that we don't stall in labor, so that you can feel that relief in your back or in your side that feels super uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, we're doing those things as well in labor besides, you know, just the, oh my gosh, you're doing amazing. Because <laughs> we're also doing that as well, right? Like, yes, this sucks. Yes, this is so hard. And yes, you're doing it, right? Um, we're doing both. <laughs> Where were you 20 and 26 years ago for me? Yeah, I know. I'm like, I don't know if a baby's in my future, but I'll keep the contact around. We're, we're excited. We have our second annual motherhood summit through Children at Risk. So we I saw that on your website. Yes, it's tomorrow, April 27th from 10 a.m. to noon, just for anyone listening. Um, or if you yourself are curious, you can register on our website for free. But we dissect these issues and just talk about the health and well-being that mothers have and how this um, in the United States states has a direct impact on just livelihood in general and so dissecting into these data points in texas the maternal mortality rates um, it's going to be an interesting conversation i'm excited to tune in yeah i think you know at the end of the day the transitionhood into parenthood the transitionhood that's hilarious the transition into parenthood is crazy right mm -hmm. like lots of things happen the relationship between you and your family your partner you know you and your kid you and your body you know you and the outside world your world you there's so much going on and so having someone that can be there by your side with unbiased information right it's not like your grandma who has like beautiful intentions but maybe her information is a little outdated right but like unbiased like support, I think, is just so, so important. And I love that we, there is this resurgence of doulas and there is this look at midwifery again and low intervention birth and how can we kind of fix this catastrophe that's happening surrounding maternal mortality in America. Right. Thank you so much for coming on, Eleanor. Before you go, I was informed you have a podcast. If you want to plug to anyone listening, continuing. I do. Yeah. So me and one of my co-doulas with our collective, Premier Doulas of Houston, uh, we have a podcast. Our podcast is called In the Family Way. Um, it is definitely adult centered, like I curse like a sailor. Um, <laughs> so just keep that in mind when listening. But it's basically real information, real talk about the sticky, the messy, unfiltered information regarding parenthood, pregnancy, postpartum, all of those beautiful things. Well, I will definitely be tuning in and maybe talking myself out of parenthood. <laughs> but I'm excited to hear. Thank you so much for coming on. And we hope you have a great Thank day. Thank you so much. Thank I you. appreciate it. Moving forward with, again, debatably the best transition song of the show, we have Layla. Layla, how are you today in sunny California? Hey, I am doing great. How are y'all? We are doing, doing great. great. We are learning a lot. I did not know that much about motherhood, so I now have even more to learn while hearing about it, but we are excited. I don't know if you heard my, once again, terrible guess for 70%. But we are eager to hear what this number actually entails. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that you didn't guess well this week, considering that you have uh, personal <laughs> experience in this domain. Um, but 70% um, of teachers um, who were surveyed expressed serious consideration um, that they might leave the profession um, in a survey by the Texas State Teachers Association. And this was recent survey, correct? 2022? Yes. That was a 2022 survey, which 
at the last time they did that survey in 2018, we saw a 53% jump for that 2022 survey. So it's gone up massively since the pandemic. Correct. And I think a lot of it, um, a conversation obviously is around the pandemic, but I think there's a lot more we could talk about just how politics has put a lot of pressure on classrooms. I could see why that number also jumped Mm -hmm. past just COVID and shut down. There's a lot more to talk about. Yeah, and I'm definitely. Wondering, yeah, I think I'm wondering how these numbers are even broken down further in terms of which teachers are leaving the classroom, you know, yeah. and how that how that um, lines up with with some of our equity concerns. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that we need a more diverse uh, teaching workforce than we have, and I think that there's definitely a lot of pressures on teachers of color um, that other teachers may not experience in the same way. Um, you know, with public school classrooms becoming, you know, cultural battlegrounds. Um, yeah, it, it is an already very difficult profession is becoming even more stressful. Sure. And I know you have, because obviously the data expert doesn't just come with one number, a few more numbers <laughs> to kind of put behind, um, I guess, give a voice to these teachers that were surveyed. Yeah, I mean, in that survey, about 94% of teachers who were surveyed expressed um, an increase in stress in their professional lives after the pandemic. Um, The statewide employed teacher attrition rate rose to 11.5% in the 2021-2022 school year, up from 9.3% in 2020-2021. And when the 2022 school year started in August, there were 2,236 teaching vacancies across five of the area's largest districts. Um, so that's um, Houston ISD, Fort Bend ISD. Yeah. Aldine, Katie, and then CFISD. Why am I blinking right now? That's Central Cy-Fair. Fair. Cy-Fair. That's where I live. <laughs> Central Forest, even ISD. here. <laughs> Just picking acronyms. Cypress Fairbanks. That is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. No, I'd be, I mean, this was just in the beginning of the year, but even to look at those numbers now, it is, um, like I said, it's way more and we have it in our growing up in Houston report, Mm -hmm. but just the distance learning and learning loss. I mean, the pressures, the stress, um, it's just creating burnout exponentially in peers. So, Layla, in your data opinion, what what can the state start to do? What should the state be prioritizing in maintaining teachers? I mean, I I don't want to boil it down to something. (laughs) A lot. A lot. I mean, I think something, obviously, teachers need better pay. Um, They need more protections in terms of their ability and flexibility to take sick time. Um, They need more supports in the classroom, smaller classroom sizes, as well as, you know, extended supports in schools. I mean, teachers serve, they wear so many different hats. And I think that having better supports outside the classroom, like mental health supports and things of that nature, um, so that teachers can focus on teaching because kids are being supported holistically by other staff in the school. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you think of all of these different um, watershed moments in, in in the United States, you know, 9-11, I was a first grade teacher then, and then Hurricane Katrina, and I think I was teaching third or fourth graders with special needs and you know then the pandemic and I can just I don't know if we give teachers enough credit for how we really take on the stressors of every child in our class you know and yeah. knowing what they're going through at home teachers are also going through that at home too yeah but, but you really have to as a teacher pull it together and leave yep. your personal experience you at the door you do to almost especially in your instance with the being in multiple classes, overseeing mm-hmm. over yeah. 50 plus kids. Yeah. I um, always think about that 9-11 because I was in a classroom with first graders and my own kindergartner was across town, you know, and yeah. having to care for everyone's child in that class, but also having to be able to rely on the fact that someone was caring for mine too. You yeah. Know, and even I couldn't imagine the first graders because there's yeah. just, they still look at the world with wonder. Sure. So the questions they have in trying to kind of have those conversations yeah. that's hard yeah I remember my mom checked us out of school that day yeah it was just like everyone was in a panic yeah it was a really incredible um experience to go through and then to reflect on and i just think we need to we need to give teachers credit for that that type of emotional stability that they have to maintain 
Yes. And also higher pay and more benefits that and too. more leave and support. Absolutely. But yeah, give teachers credit. Don't, don't hey, rag on them. Yeah. That's right. They're doing a lot. Cool. Well, thank you, Layla. And we look forward to hearing the data point next week, which maybe Claire will have a better guess for. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Have a good one. Thank you. Do we have our music? Oh, we switched it up. And for our last but very certainly not least guest, we have Linda Crichada, our very own, to talk to us about El Dia de Nino. Linda, how are you? I'm doing great, Claire. How are you? We are great. Me and Sharon are having a great, calm afternoon. I'm learning a lot, <laughs> I can say. We're excited to learn about literacy. I feel like every episode is education-centric, but when you give me the reins, it always will be. So it's not going to change. But go ahead and tell us a little bit about, um, am I saying El, de- El Dia de Nino? Say yeah, well... You know, I, I talk about this in some of our video series on our social media posts, um, platforms. And I really was introduced to El Día del Niño growing up here in El Paso on the U.S.-Mexico border. And as, as a kid, you know, I remember in elementary school, that meant more story time um, in our library, which is always an exciting get for me. Um, free book drives at parks, um, and the effort was to encourage more kids to uh, read and, you know, hopefully improve our literacy rates across the state. Um, but, you know, this was an initiative. We have International Children's Day in June, but El Día del Niño actually started in Mexico to celebrate children in, in Mexican society. And, you know, when you see how close our communities are on the border, that was a holiday that we soon started marking as well. Yeah, awesome. And I know, I'll get another plug to Children at Risk video series. You can check out on our social media. But we just recently talked about literacy rates in one of them. And we can kind of discuss all the different facets. But can you shine light on what that looks like right now in Texas? Right. Well, I mean, I love this narrative because it. Uh, Christine Thomas um, joined me from RC's Me. Um, network, and she just provided some wonderful data about how areas like the Rio Grande Valley on the border um, are leading the way. You know, these are these are regions where identity is very fluid. I think that's something that I really appreciated living on the border is I, I didn't have to decide between, you know, a Mexican culture, American culture. I was just fluid as I am, and I think I enjoyed being in both of those worlds. But what I really wanted to understand when I spoke with Christine was, you know, is it true? Do we need to abandon our native language to be more successful in the English language and essentially assimilate? Um, And Christine provided some great debunking information that shows that, no, actually, when we have a good handle of our own native languages, that predicts high performance um, in, in our English performance. So I think that's fantastic um, because it, it really encourages children to identify with all of themselves, you know, come to the classroom with all that they have to give, all of their identity. Um, not one part of it would hold them back. In fact, if they embraced it all, they could be more successful. I can only imagine how great being a dual language child is for just develop early childhood development and you know you you listen to scientists talk about how synapses are formed when kids are small Mm -hmm. and how you know those early language years are really the years when kids are like a sponge and just the ability to be bilingual seems to me like that opens um a lot of intellectual doors for being successful in math and sciences as well Mm-hmm. I mean, Rosemary also joined me. She works in our development team, and she speaks about 27 languages. Oh. Um, and, I mean, it's just so impressive because I it was interesting to hear how she mixed in her love of learning all of these other languages mm-hmm. 
to how she interacts with so many other persons. You know, in development, you really need to to learn to find your niche with people from various socioeconomic, um, you know, standpoints of where they might be coming from. And so by learning other languages, understanding how people express themselves and think, she feels that she can also better interact with people that are different from her. So, you know, I love that perspective, too, because... So many times language seems to be a divider in our society, but in fact, it can create so much commonality instead. I think we're in a great deal of denial, too, just about how the how American English is so peppered with words from other languages. You know, yeah. it, it it's even helpful when you're taking the SAT and you, you get those big words. And if you know Spanish, if you know a yeah, little bit of Latin, if you know some Italian, some of the words that we use commonly, you know, are derived from all these other languages and so it just seems like learning Spanish and knowing it well would also help you with English. Absolutely. I mean and I I just I think that's so informative of where we could go um and how our societies could improve and also help children accept their identities as well, you know, when they're faced it, you know something I think that was interesting for me growing up is that my life, my childhood was so fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not until I entered the educational system that I started feeling like, you know, this whole Spanish thing could hold me back. Um, and so immediately I found, felt the stress to leave Spanish behind, stop speaking it as much, which was, you know, impossible because my, my sure. parents only speak Spanish. Um, but, you know, looking at our data now and saying, actually, that was all wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if we can encourage our youth, our, our children, our newcomers here in Texas to embrace their identity and, and not feel that pressure that I felt, for example. Sure. I think that really helps us push for inclusivity. Yeah. And I know we spoke on it, but like your similar experiences, and I'm, I remember I had students and colleagues with those experiences where they feel very vulnerable as a newcomer because of not knowing English or not feeling confident enough to say it. But being bilingual or a trilingual is so, so, so powerful. And just um, even in the smallest bit, it's, it's so interesting. And it's a power, a power. It's not, it's not a crutch or vulnerability and we should empower it more and encourage it more. I have a friend with a two-year-old now. Oh my gosh, she's getting so big um, in a English Spanish home. And like you said, hearing or seeing their minds be able to pick up on two languages at once to me is like the highest order of child mm-hmm. development mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. like quickly switch back and forth um, they do it effortlessly it's, yeah. it's it's adults that have the difficulty yeah i know when i was trying to pick up or as i'm trying to pick up on spanish when i was in communities that didn't speak english trying to immerse like i myself felt what my students were feeling immersed fully in english not knowing a lot of english of you just fake it or make it and they do mm-hmm. it so well and they're they're just so great and they should be championed for it but I know you've had these before, so we're going to pretend like you haven't or try to switch <laughs> the answer. But are you okay with us starting our last five fun questions? Sure. Okay. I don't, luckily, I have very bad memory, so I don't remember the answers. And maybe we have new guests. But our first question is, what was your favorite book to read or be read as or read to as a, as a child? Well, music, oh gosh, please. my favorite book. Um, I mean, I like simple things. I think it's just like the iconic stuff, like Goodbye Moon, for example. Um, and that helped me too. In as as I was trying to understand English, identifying, you know, Luna Moon. Um, yeah. So I, I think that was a dynamic way for me to to learn. Right, do you want to ask the next one? Sure. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Besides director actually, of the Immigration <laughs> Yes, director of the Children's Immigration Network. Um, I actually wanted to be a geologist. It, it was super boring. Nobody understood it. <laughs> um, I would collect rocks in my in my pockets. My mom would have to sew them. And I would just be like, ooh, cool rock. Um, I want to understand the earth. 
but that's where I started. <laughs> I'm sure you were the one. I mean, I was too in the Scholastic Book Fair catalogs, yes. the Little Rock sets. Yes. Yes. So circling those, yes. hoping one day they'll show up when they had delivery day. That was powerful. I think those Scholastic Book book. I was uh, very excited about Tiger's Eye. <laughs> those book fairs was probably the start to my uh, shopping problems. No, it's, <laughs> remember you would get the catalog and then you're like three weeks it'd be delivery. That was the start of my Amazon shopping right, addiction right. with that. The third one, I know you've answered this and I do think I remember your answer, but maybe you switched it. What actress would play you in the movie of your life? Still going, Selena Gomez. <laughs> but now you I, have to I champion her. Dan with Selena. Yes. <laughs> Love it. We're more in sync than ever. <laughs> Do you have a comfort movie or TV show or book? Something that you. Um, yeah, I think this works counter to what people would naturally think is um, would make sense. But I, I really like suspense movies mm. um and so it, it like who done it but yeah. also like um homeland um with claire danes or the diplomat which is mm -hmm. out now on netflix i just like those movies that just engage me and i completely forget about literally everything else because i'm trying to crack a code or something <laughs> perfect and the last one is who motivates you um, my mommy. I, I mean, I adore her. I think, you know, I, she was, um, a, a union member in the sixties when she was a field worker in California. And I just, I love how fearless she was about her rights. And, um, you know, I, I think that this is common with Latinas to always be so humble and say, no, everybody else first. But it was a time where my mom said, Actually, me first, and That's and awesome. I love that that she did that. So she continues to inspire me. Moms are moms are the best, and it's almost Mother's Day too. And shameless yeah. plug. Speaking of moms, if you she miss celebrates <laughs> twice. <laughs> uh, yeah. tomorrow is our motherhood summit so uh, more conversations about moms if you missed our shameless plug earlier that is going to be from 10 a.m <laughs> to 12 and you can go to childrenatrisk.org and then you can tell your mom that you love her and a happy mother's day what is it may 10th did i, I make so. that up may 10th something like that yeah <laughs> well thank you so much linda and Everyone go ahead to Children at Risk social media to see the videos on El Dia de Nino to learn more from Linda on this important holiday. May 13th. Or 14th. <laughs> Thank you both. Bye. Have a good day. You too. That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much for listening to Growing Up in America by Children at Risk. If you enjoyed it, please tune in every week we are wednesday 12 to 1 now so for the past listeners sorry to take the spot but he is at 6 a.m now if you're looking for the different show anyway this is claire and this is sharon i'll talk to you soon have a great day Be from out of town. So hard with my girls not around me. It's definitely.